Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Trees and non-binaries to another exciting episode of the Hostile Takeover and a Happy New Year from us here at Fantastic Universes and Aaron Spencer's Productions. 2022 has an exceptionally low bar to clear. We're within the first week of the whole new year as of the time of recording and the release of this episode, so we are all cautiously and quietly optimistic going into this new year. And as a New Year's resolution, we want to thank those who are still with us, but also those are to you, dear listeners, that your new resolution to be to join the Fantastic Nation by subbing to us on our Patreon. As you well know, each of our patrons get full access to uh, our written content many, many days in advance, as well as unedited and uninterrupted ad-free episodes of each podcast we produce, namely this show, the soon-to-be-returning Wayward Rewatch uh, Supernatural Summary by myself and Faye Clark, as well as the Geek Podcast by Super Dummy Paul. There's much to be looking forward to in this brand new year, but we're going to start with something familiar, the grand and wide frontiers of PC, console, and tabletop gaming with the regular guest, SE of Aaron Spectre Productions, talking with me about Dungeons and Dragons goodness. My good pal, how are you? Adam, hello. Happy New Year as well. The bar is certainly low. Um, We have so far so good. But it's certainly a low bar to clear because 2020 and 2021 were, well, we all know the story, but yeah. low bar indeed. Low bar indeed. So let us <laughs> keep the spirits up and the attitudes high as we look. With yeah, so far, so good. So far, so good. So with the new and positive outlook of 2021 lifting our spirits and keeping us high and positive, let's become a bit sinister as we open up this new year and our new segment yes. show. As yes. You- Yes, we were all very excited to talk about antagonists, the people that are there at the other side of the Grand Hall, the ones giving the grand speeches to our heroes right before the master plan comes to fruition. Love a good villain. Not necessarily the villain or the bad guys, but an antagonist is something that I think is just essential to storytelling, even if they're not necessarily your person, but just some grand force that opposes our heroes. But uh I'm certain you have many a hot take to say about antagonists, indeed. (laughs) Many, but I believe you had a story you wanted to start with as sort of a case study, which I'm very eager to pick apart and offer my critiques and also support. (laughs) Yes, because when it comes to building campaigns and telling stories, uh, I find that in a lot of cases, uh, there's no great story without some great force that opposes our hero. It's very similar and classic to your uh your hero's journey sort of arcs and narrative circles that are set up by joseph campbell there's always some grand force that you meet a quarter to a third of the way through any given narrative that really is the main source of conflict for your hero something that puts the roadblocks in front of them that leads to their character growth that sets the tone of the story obviously in our world tabletop rpg a lot of that stuff is a bit more freeform because the players can go uh, in certain Mm -hmm. directions that the narratives we've written may not necessarily account for but because... <laughs> which we've discussed before oh yeah players uh, going off the rails plan everything but plan nothing is the only advice i'll ever give to any game master <laughs> in any tabletop rpg it's good advice yeah but in any case there has to be some force that gives our heroes their reason to go forth because there's something that blocks them and it's usually the right case to put a negative or insidious or sinister agent as a person or a sink or a group of figures there in front of them. We see this all the time in fiction, but I think of figures like Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes or the Courts of Owls or the Joker from Batman. 
But uh, figures like that are instrumental in fiction. But uh, before we look into how you and I build our villains, uh, what's your take on the actual like use of a antagonist type character in fiction? I like that we become morally gray over the years. I think even though you try to avoid the terms villains and bad guys, I think it's still good vocabulary to use when dealing with the players specifically, because as we discuss in these morally gray areas, everyone thinks that they are the hero, right? Everyone thinks that they're the hero of their own story, of their own story which is an excellent place to start. Whether you're doing D&D, tabletop games, or fiction on TV, or Netflix movies, whatever. That morally gray quagmire though but again the use of vocabulary like saying villain out of character because you want the you want the players to feel empowered you want them to feel like they are on the righteous path even if they are murder hobos they are still the heroes of their own story but as long as you have that foundation of the motivation of this character is they think that they are doing good in the world that's probably a good baseline a good guideline to start for anything that's your foundation sometimes having that chaotic element where someone is evil for evil's sake sort of like a jack the ripper type character or a a murder mystery serial killer type character that's good and and but you want to mix it up that's kind of that should be the outlier the comic book villains of the 90s are just i think everyone immediately dismisses them now just because you know like you said using the term villain beyond just you know having a reference point for the party it is a little misleading and antagonist is a good way to kind of steer yourself away from that but again i think as long as you have a baseline whether you're a professional or just getting into uh, narrative storytelling that as long as you have that foundation where everyone thinks of the hero of their own story and then in the background of whatever the greater world is there's always that one hint or whisper or active case of that outlier who is quote unquote true chaotic evil, which is just basically violence and suffering and or pain for violence and suffering and pain sake, which could be translated to evil. Yeah, I suppose uh, it's important to recognize that a lot of very unclear morals has become the tone of the day. But honestly, I feel that that leads to a lot of richer and deeper stories, which is a, certainly the tone and the trend of things have been going forth. Uh, late and it's been really interesting to see it's the a relatable antagonist someone who has good motives and good intentions but has very questionable means is probably the easiest way to convey that but still it's still interesting to show that there's still nothing clear that this person is good fine and shining this person is dark and twisted and you know who to root for and who not to root for as long as there's a reason that we have some pause as to who the motivations would be behind, we get more interesting and rich stories. And that's why it's we've sort of t- tended towards anti-heroes in mm-hmm. a lot of fiction at the present, as well as uh, villainous characters that would have inhabited heroic shells maybe 20 or 30 years ago in stories. So right. that, that tone of things has been going forth. And it's good to see that that's becoming some more of a trend here in tabletop RPG as we're starting to move away from alignment and moralities and binalities that we've discussed and beaten to death in the roast of uh, alignment in the previous episode do check that out if you haven't heard that dear listener 
the... Yes, which uh, D&D officially, well, Wizards of the Coast officially took out. Did you see the errata? It's been... I need to read it fully, but still, it's a very <laughs> exciting bit of news that I'm going to yes. look very closely at. Uh, For the um, most part, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting to see them like put that forward properly. I think they need to like put that into like a reasonable publication, and I feel like that's gonna be a huge mechanical turn point. They're gonna have to build things around in five point five in two years' time. As to mm. why they've announced that now, I still have no idea. But yeah, well, it's... just to segue back to your earlier comment, yeah. I had something I wanted to springboard off of. Cersei Lannister is an excellent example of that sort of morally gray, not quite a villain, but kind of clearly the villain and or antagonist. So I remember having a discussion with a lot of my uh, a lot of my girlfriends about the characters of Game of Thrones. And when we were discussing it, you know, I was talking about oh, Daenerys and Daenerys at the time, even though even, we're not going to talk about how bad season eight is. We're just that's a whole separate conversation. Uh, we were talking about Daenerys like circa season six or seven. And that was I was kind of in that camp and I'm still House Targaryen. But and then uh, one of my friends said, well, what about we'll look at Cersei. Cersei is the ultimate bad bitch, like the embodiment of a strong, powerful woman who doesn't take shit from any man or anybody, anybody. in general, flexes her muscle oh, like yeah you know I, I i know you know there's the cliche with a hashtag girl boss but seriously she is a fucking girl boss for real and that's she's clearly kind of in that antagonistic villainous trope especially as the writing gets a little bit sloppier and a little bit more uh, questionable but still even with painting her in that light even all the way through uh, most of the show, again, ignoring season eight, yep. for all seven seasons, she is, you can you can relate to that woman who was just kind of thrown around and abused and is in this patriarchal society who rises above all that and becomes this antagonistic character, but is just the most powerful woman opposite Daenerys on the planet. Yeah, and it's really that's so. Like, or it's, at least in Western content. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of other examples in different kinds of stories, but uh, it's interesting to see that, like, she's... Game of Thrones has definitely a really good set of uh, morally grey and morally dubious, but still not clearly evil characters. But then again, it also does in the form of, like, your Joffreys and your uh, Ramsay, mm -hmm. Ramsay Snows. But, well, that that's your little chaotic, that's your chaotic evil outlier that we were talking about. Yeah, the that and I think there's still something that is just so satisfying of seeing someone that nasty and vicious and relentless and irredeemable just being torn down by someone that you can just root mm -hmm. behind because they have a code as opposed to those uh foamy at the mouth rabid chaotic evil types. But still the richness and depth that you get with someone who intentionally doesn't follow any clear signs because we really relate to Cersei because she's a grieving mother th throughout mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. emotionally damaged um, just individual. So you can't really hate her for her actions, but you can see that her actions are extreme. So you can find reasons to root with her and also feel bad about it and root for the people that oppose her. But we get a lot of moments to it where it's just, yes satisfying depth of uncertainty with what a character's motivated by that we can't call them 
we can't call them villains. They just happen to antagonize the people that we are inherently rooting for. Yeah, it's like the lesser of two evils. Exactly. And it's good when you put it that way, because by making being the lesser of two evils, we recognize that there's some sort of insidious and ungood, ungood nature to our protagonists. There's that while we have morally gray and uncertain villains, we should also have morally gray and unclear heroes who do good things, but still probably in bad ways. But we happen to be with them first, so maybe they were off entry point into the narrative, so we sort of root for them by by default. Yeah, I mean, they, they had a wonderful story with Daenerys as exactly that. And to be completely honest, this is my hot take on on season eight is that I think season eight should have ended midway through midway through episode six show Daenerys becoming a villain. And I've done this in d and I've done this in d with my D&D villains show the antihero becoming the villain and just let the villain have that moment. And you could say, yeah, you know, that's that's the arc. The hero becomes the villain. The, I think the last 45 minutes of episode six of season eight just unraveled the entire eight seasons but again that's a different conversation there's a different conversation that'd be interested to have with you probably on a different show but in any case now that we've grounded our thoughts and our terminology into the term mm-hmm. antagonist we're yes. not going to use the, the word villain here we're going to at least try not to uh it's easy to just label someone of the of just like oh they're in the way of our heroes they're the villains mm-hmm. we have to hate them by them being an antagonist, they put blocks in front of our main characters so that we have reasons to work against them, but their reasons may be noble or may be layered or may be psychologically rich that we can't fully hate them. So we have to think of them in a completely different way, and that's great, and that's something we should all strive to for when we're telling all kinds of stories. But I love to try to put very clear psychological and motivational situational reasons on why my antagonists do what they do and as i was thinking of preparing the episode i had a long look at some of the antagonists i prepared in my most recent games with the ladies over at ordinary heroes and i think it'd be there'd be three i'd say main major antagonists they all directly oppose one of the main party members uh and the reason they oppose them so clearly is because they are, in one way or other, extreme opposites of the character that they're going up against. And I think that's why they're so effective for me. Now, do you do you directly tie them into the backstory in most situations? Uh, very heavily. Uh, by some way or other, I've tried to make them either a clear connection to... Well, one of them is a direct character from mm. a character's backstory. Two of the oh. others have very strong ties into like strong details of the character's backstory and have I've mm-hmm. taken what they've given to me in their backstories, deliberately subverted a lot of the player's expectations so that when more things get revealed, they'll still be surprised, but it's still got enough of the backstory stuff as a foundation that it'll still feel sincere and it's not just me making up random fanfiction. Yeah, that's the way you got to do it. You have to. I mean, I, I like what you said about tying in the backstory. Of course, that's kind of rule number one. But then also making them diametrically opposed to that character. I really like that. I'm probably going to use yeah. that now. Yeah, I think it's a really essential. And I can give you three clear examples right now. Um, 
one of them I can't name because uh, they haven't been introduced. Spoilers. For, spoilers, yep. yes, for mm-hmm. the ladies of No Ordinary Heroes and the people who watch us on youtube.com forward slash NOH official, I think, <laughs> is our user, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, they, they have not been revealed in how mischievously devilish their villainy is, but the other two have. Um, the first one would be the one who opposes Juan Yu, the Wood Elf Ranger, and that would be General Shiren Hao of uh, the Kurate and Shi. So a bit of con- uh, const- context for those who may not have seen the show and for yourself, Essie. Um, okay. Uh, Juan Yu is a Wood Elf Ranger from, uh, from a, a society of elves across the ocean okay. called Maone. It's very loosely based on full-on Sokoku Decree feudal Japan. With okay, a lot I like of, that. I, I know you do. Uh, with a few <laughs> cultural S elements of um, uh, early imperial China, because I don't want to just fully pastiche just Japanese culture and just Chinese culture. I recognize the whole wider East as a sphere and sort of integrate a lot of it to create a new culture without like heavily caricaturing mm-hmm. or like borrowing too heavily from one side. So right. the, a lot of the aesthetics borrow, marry from a lot of places here and there. So what the class structure in that society that she came from is heavily stratified. The rich are extremely mm. rich and the poor are beyond destitute in the area known around uh, the round of the base of the city known as the Dragon Road, but they just affectionately call the slums. Um, okay. And that Class divide is uh, ruled over by a military police called the Kuroteo Senshi, or as the slum people commonly know it as, the Steel. Now, Juan Yu was one of these street kids in the slums living fairly rough with his, back then, his, she's a trans character. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, a trans femme absolute queen. Uh, we stand. You stand indeed. But um, back when, back before her transition, when maintaining the name John Yu is the gender-neutral name that a lot of elven, elven names are, mm-hmm. he lived with his. Uh, it's weird to call him a his. Uh, he lived with his two brothers, two dear friends that were as close to him as brothers, Zhan uh, Hong and Shiren. There was a moment when Zhuan Yu and Shiren were out trying to gather some goods just to live and to gather food and supplies, but uh, a street vendor thought that Zhuan Yu was stealing and called in the city guard to steal, and apprehended Juan Yu and took him away. But uh, he watched as Shiren stood by and didn't offer any a chance to help. After a while, through some daring rogue work from a fellow rogue that Juan Yu met in prisons, they escaped and fled to across the ocean to where the campaign is currently taking place. Mm-hmm. Back home, Shiren was able to escape poverty through very extreme means and through sheer bloody determination in the, the decades and centuries of elven life to eventually become a very high-ranking official within that military police. I, I love seeing people actually use the longevity of the elves to their advantage. So kudos yep. you for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to have been able to ascend in those ranks, even with elf, elven longevity, if you weren't necessarily mm-hmm. born into that part of society but still that bloody-minded determination was what uh, Shiren allowed him to become a general and they are that that military that military police force they have 
like a almost supernatural reputation of being just in, incredibly insidious bogeymen. Mm, they okay. are incredibly brutal. Stormtroopers. Sort of. Actually, a lot like that. Yeah. <laughs> but the the reasonability is it's it's not unfounded. Like for anyone who's disturbing the peace, they will black bag you, put you in a carriage, and you are never heard from again. That kind of like like past stormtrooper almost part gestapo mm. but that, that a lot of those models are pretty like congruent yeah sounds very similar to the Aeroth Tikka that we use in our, our homebrew campaign yeah very they're... similar but much smaller kind of like uh yeah they you know, localized cia cells yeah they're they're very much localized to that that province <clears throat> of uh that elven society across the ocean but um the whole difference is that while Joanne went across the ocean, she she transitioned and mm-hmm. found herself part of a found family of, despite herself being a ranger, an urban city wise ranger, she was in a she was in a family of rogues and a rogue artificer. So she bounced off of their lively and chaotic different personalities and clung to her own homely memories of her late mother. She acts in a completely selfless way, as largely as she possibly can, trying to maintain that level of sincerity. And I thought that that clear character detail was the thing to perfectly contrast against the individual, somewhat self-centered nature of this general that used to be like a brother, but is now just entirely insular and following blindly to a system that they used to both hate and fear. That's why when he was revealed in the campaign, it felt like such an emotional betrayal to mm-hmm. see someone that was that trusted just literally abandon everything they believed in. Yeah, no, I like that. And it's kind of, you know, you're tying everything back into the character's story, and it's that kind of almost a small subplot, but it becomes front and center because the player characters. So I like that. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, it was a very clear sort of motive to sort of go through because in terms of the uh, the backstory that was given to me by the player, she had laid out all of these characters from her past and explained that when, when you left that society, that one elf was uncaring and very eager to just see, let her go. So it was a very clear thing that I was able to build off on in a way that still felt sincere and I think that's something I advise a lot of game masters is to try and find things that you can build on while still feeling inspired by what your players have given you and I'm very proud of that one of the three that I'll talk about as I hopefully don't sound like I'm rambling No, that's totally fine. Would you like to get all three out of the way and just gonna go bang bang bang? Uh, I guess so. I think we can probably go into like the more like that one was very close to the, closely related to the backstory. The two rapid others, fire, uh, yeah. The, the <laughs> other two are somewhat more built off of some of my other ideas based on the uh, the backstories I was given. So yeah, so far so good. I like the first one. Yeah, pretty other, straightforward, pretty simple. Yeah. So the other one we've seen in the uh, campaign so far is uh, the. I'm very glad I was able to actually use an <laughs> evil tw- an evil twin, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said evil. <laughs> the trope of a twin you didn't know about that works mm-hmm. contrary to you. It, <laughs> it, it, 
the evil twin thing is a very obvious trope that I hate that I that I had to use, but it's still it's fun no, though. It's it's so yeah. fun. It's so fun, and I'm glad I was able to make it work. But uh, this was one we was had introduced in uh, in the campaign so far. Teshag, uh, powerful powerful wizard who opposes. Oh, I, like, I like the name. It kind of conjures powerful imagery. Teshag. I'll send you um, artwork later, but. Uh, Volagar the half orc paladin was once was a half orc raised by the orcs in a fairly run of the mill but still like laid and stratified orc tribe society. Um, the brutalistic leadership didn't really care for his half orc his half orc heritage and left him for dead. Very similar to your Grogstone Jawsaw of Origins. But what really defined his difference was that he was picked up by a very small religious sect and the god chose him with high favour and he was trained within this religious sect despite his very unclear connections to modern society and a great deal of PTSD from being abandoned by his family. He wanders his way into the setting where, into the city where the campaign is taking place and his made himself a staunch protector of the new people he surrounded himself by. He feels that that's something he was good at back when he was in the tribe, back when he was in the temple, and now here amongst the rest of the party. I thought that it was important to contrast Volagar with a villain that was accepted by the society he was abandoned by, and a also antagonist. An antagonist who was Get you on too. <laughs> I'm I'm really laying myself down. An antagonist who was accepted by the society he that was he was left behind by. Mm-hmm. And an antagonist who understood the powers that were bestowed unto her, as opposed to some sort of powers by an an indifferent force that was just shunted onto him that he doesn't clearly understand. And I thought of the very unclear nature of what his early formative childhood was like because to a an orc warchy father and a human mother what could have possibly happened that may have been different at the beginning so mm. at the beginning his love the warchief trope though yeah uh, it's it's it, this was all um his uh his phil clark's idea um he's featured on the podcast before he's a he's a great guy he's a very seasoned player strong storyteller um i challenge Makora! Can you tell how you swear where the work happened? Don't worry, you've grown, you've grown out of it. <laughs> um, Indeed. Thankfully. Thankfully. Perfect timing, too. Clean for, yeah, clean for two years now, so. <laughs> you obviously say clean like it's a, like it's a yeah. thing you've done. <laughs> we, we talked about this before. It's like, the, days, yeah. you know, but but now now I have transitioned to a, a cardboard cardboard cocaine. Yes, you have, uh, you have elevated. You're a, much, you're a much stronger gamer now. Yes. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, he, the the watch his watchy father mm. returned to his human mother to see that she had born twins. He kept the male and left the female to be raised by the human mother because gross, Cla- patri- yeah, gross okay. patriarchal patriarchy tropes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But this young lady grew up in her human mother's care, mm. grew a fascination with magic and a fascination with the wild people that she was born from but knew yeah so about. half orc right you said yeah they're both half, half orcs okay yeah they're both half orcs and she went in and around the in and around the, the countryside that the 
campaign is set in and became a master of invocation magic, fire and lightning to spark fear and awe in the people. We stand a good evocation wizard. <laughs> we <laughs> pew, do. Pew. <laughs> and as she had mastered that magic, she wandered very calmly into the tribe, conjured mm. fire, conjured lightning, inspired and befuddled many. But as some began to challenge her strength, she, as far as the party are aware, regained control of her heritage. As the daughter of a long-lost blood chief, the party belongs to her since the last heir was abandoned on the side of the road, beaten bloody and broken. Did she then obtain an unquenchable thirst? Uh, Yes, because she needed to... uh, Blood chief thirst? Uh, blood sheep's there, that's very nice. <laughs> well, she had to recoup, recoup some thirst from the immense blood loss because in the fight to gain control of this tribe, mm-hmm. her right arm was torn clean from her shoulder. Oh my gosh. But with that, she was <laughs> okay. able to use her will, her own willpower and her own magic to use the mage, to use mage hand to lift her staff. And uh, even now, her, thre- her threadbare robes are still very tattered from her own, own wizarding days into now, but still. When she walks, the staff moves by itself, being moved by an invisible mage hand. So in that moment, you're telling me that she had, and I love this, an anime Deku Deku moment? Yes. Where she was able to channel the power of friendship and determination to, to she, take her mage she, hand she, and she, put the arm back on there and then power up. I love no, this. She, she, she has no right it. arm. She has no right arm. She oh, Okay. But she moves... Powered through the pain. Powered yeah. through the pain, and she moves as though she still has her right arm, like a phantom Love limb, it. but it's a phantom mage hand. And you know the motion of like walking with a staff or with a cane? That's how mm-hmm. the staff moves beside her, even though there's no visible arm there controlling it. Oh, that's really cool. I like that. I'll send you some artwork that I had commissioned by a friend of her. A yeah, and, and I, I like seeing more disabled characters in games, too. Yeah. And seeing how, how they adapt and overcome with it ingenuity. Is- Improvise, adapt, overcome. But still, mm-hmm. she became a master of magic through her own determination. She became the veritable sovereign of this society of people that her brother was cast out of. She had all of that acceptance that Volagar, her twin brother, never did. But still, she's somehow unsatisfied, much in the same way that all of that uncertainty that Volagar feels is on his shoulders, but still he feels unsatisfied. So there's a lot of tension that we've seen on screen in the game so far that brings them to very similar sets of morals but ultimately they still clash because their their methods are so different one's a protector one's an aggressor and not the ones that you would expect given their their heritage love it i hope so and that's still ongoing, it seems. It's still ongoing. She is, uh, okay. she, she is leading... Because I was like, what next? <laughs> oh, I, I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Uh, okay, the... cool. I love that. Yeah, it's open-ended. That's, that's yeah. perfect. That story arc. As to, in terms of like how all three story arcs are going to be resolved with the three villains I'm going to talk about, they're all antagonists, nearly. Uh, going to be... You wanted... was... No, no. I was going to say... I nearly called myself out, but I saved it with antagonists. <laughs> um, Mm-hmm. Close, very close. I'm I'm holding you to task here. So please do. We, we we set ourselves a code here because we, it's not just a code we're going to swear by, but it's also a code just to improve people's thinking in terms of this kind of story. Mm-hmm. But still, the storylines for all these antagonists are still very much up in the air. But I have hopes 
based on my own writing as to where they're going to go, but I always count on my players to surprise me. Especially given with this third and final antagonist, their grand scheming is yet to be really revealed. Okay, more of a teaser. Yeah, because with uh, Soros Varna, the Kalistar sorcerer played by the, uh, the wickedly talented Rene. Um, okay. Uh, Soros Varna was a young shrine maiden in her very small village of Kalistar. Kalistar are extremely rare in my setting because I love the cosmic uncertain mm-hmm. element of Eberron and a very similar an- analogue of Dalcor, where the quarry spirits come from has been somewhat added to my cosmology. And they uh, they take a very Icelandic sort of shamanic approach in terms of how they're characterized in my setting. That was all Red Eyes idea, which I think was just gorgeous. Um, she was a young shrine maiden to their faith when a strange afflictions and disease started wheeling its way through through her homeland and her people. She decided to travel many, many miles across the ocean to try and look for a bastion of civilization to hope for a cure and understanding. But as she came to these shores, she found that an even worse affliction had been besieging her people, and her own knowledge expanded when she realized that her tribe wasn't the only Kalashtov out there in the world. There were some in a distant jungle very far, mm-hmm. very far from where she okay. lived. It turns out that her tribe had splintered away and sailed across the ocean. Yep, population migration. Yeah, but uh, had completely abandoned and forgotten the traditions and the teachings of their people that they'd left behind. Mm-hmm. As this has happened, she has found more and more of her people, but they seem hollowed, emptied. And as she looked closer, she saw that these people had been separated from their uh, quarry spirits. Because with Kalistar, they're a sort of binary people. They're a people with a grand, uh, illusory spectral being that acts as like a tether to the spirit world as well as their own. I don't know how familiar you are with Eberron and stuff. Yeah, I think that that theme is is was directly inspired by First Nations, uh, First Nations people with their true spirit animals, which is why it's not really okay for a white person to say, "Oh, so and so is my spirit animal," because that is an actual tradition for a lot of First Nations people. Yeah. Um, but in a, in a fantasy setting, obviously paying homage to that is is yeah. is totally fine. And I think a lot of it was also uh, inspired by the uh, the Northern Lights books, the writings of Philip Pullman. I'm not familiar. I'll have to, you'll have to uh, send the me the Cup, link the, in the doobly-doo. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> you know if you saw the Golden Compass movie like 10 years ago? Mm, yeah, I missed that one. It's excellent. It's excellent fantasy fiction of um, people with an externalized uh, entity that embodies somewhat of their soul. Yeah, no, is, it's it's a great trope for fantasy yeah. writing, for sure. Yeah, which is definitely, like, I feel uh, very analogous with the, the, the First Nations people and their beliefs of... Uh, communing with spirits but yeah it's again totally fine to say and if, you know to do that in a fantasy world uh, on the other hand not okay to go on twitter and say uh you know taylor swift is my spirit animal that's the yay yeah no. <laughs> but in a fantasy setting uh, have fun yeah pay pay all much yeah and that spiritual and uh, emotional connection between a person and their external an externalized version of their soul and their spirit is deeply personal, but... It's an excellent, some... excellent fantasy trope for D&D, especially yeah. given all the classes and the connection to the spirit realm already. But it appears that though the, 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 the spirits that these that the Kalashtar people have externalized are within their races and it can manifest different ways depending on their classes and stuff. But something is taking these spirits away from the person that they're bonded to, and it's leaving the original person as a hollowed out, 
husk-like shell of who they used to be. Like it's very clearly like sort of wakeful comatose in a way. The, the, you can see that there's the lights are on, but there's no one home. Sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to divulge here on the podcast where those spirits are going, but the entity that is taking them, much similarly to some of the other antagonists, they this antagonist directly contrasts Sora because Sora's one is a healer. She has extreme um, neurodivergences, uh, social anxiety, and like is prone to panic attacks and like grand social encounters. And uh, Rene plays this perfectly, and just be able to manage the expectation of being able to portray that level of um, depression and uncertainty in a sincere way without it being excessive is a very hard thing to manage but she does it very sincerely whilst maintaining the quality of the character throughout but it's hard to do very hard to do but that does not stop the character from acting in a really sincere and healing and maternal way consistently despite being the youngest member of the member of the party she still has a very maternal and twee and like the kind of the kind of mom friend that will reach up and rub the sauce from your lip kind of mom mm-hmm. friend <laughs> uh so much so that because part of being part of the sorcerer spell the sorcerer class was able to take life transference as a healing spell when the story needed it when her like self-deprecation in her own mental state was so strong that she was very willing to forego her own health just to heal others which was a wonderful piece of storytelling that the party had to really yeah. rally around her just to help her out of that really dark emotional state that level of selflessness is as far as i could tell what would be close to like an archetypal like good guy air quoting because we're not using mm-hmm. like a guy bad guy terms here but that <clears throat> but that openness and willingness to just like do well by others at the expense of yourself is so noble that the entity that is taking these spirits is the exact opposite of that. They are entirely self-serving because they know that the goals that they are working for is genuine, is literally being fueled by all of the spirits that they are stealing from these innocent people. They are entirely single-minded and very driven to what they want to do because of the efforts that they are going for, and they don't care who is being stepped on in this regard. But yeah, I can't really explain too much further because their plans are only being danced around at the fringes of by this party. They need to find what this entity is doing for themselves when games resume. Spoilers, and so that was a teaser for potential spoilers, which... As you say, you would like it into. So, love it. Yes, indeed. That's, All right. Uh, you ready? Yeah those, yeah, those are the villains I you want to unpack. You ready to switch gears? These are the villains I want love to it. unpack. I'm glad you, thank you for bearing with me, friend. I hope they will. Yeah, no, of course. The, uh, the the third one is a little bit more sort of, the sort of wispy as it's kind of still ongoing and setting it up. So I can't really, I don't have really too much to contribute to, to number three other than I'm excited to see uh, where that goes. I really like number two. I think that sort of whole... Um, twin aspect and seeing how the two twins develop along these separate lines and then returning to confront your past. That's a really great trope, a personal favorite of mine. And I really like number two. And also number one, uh, having that long lost, uh, almost in a similar way, but rather than having a, rather than have a twin, that long lost childhood friend or childhood acquaintance, family member, etc. 
they they seem like very similar tropes and they're very strong. Whereas the third one, it's kind of hard to to talk about when it's still ongoing. But I like the setup, so to speak. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for each uh, antagonist to get their time in the sun just to see how mm-hmm. they can be either morally redeemed or like or soundly defeated. It's uh, It'll be interesting to see how things, how the dice fall and what the players decide. I have my own aspirations, but I am one voice at that table. Despite my voice carrying a lot of world stuff, every DM has to remember that they are, even though their voice carries the longest, they are still one voice. Everyone at that table decides what the story does. So we can only see what things happen as they go forth. I'm very excited to see what happens. First, there was the DC Comics News Podcast. Then came the Spinner Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I Am The Night. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones, I am the night. Why, hello there. I'm Seth Singleton, and I'm here to tell you about Mad Pup, a Harley Quinn cast. Harley Quinn? Harley fucking Quinn? What have we learned from this crazy show? Making bat shark repellent relevant since 1966. Oh, look, Gogur. And we've gone completely off the rails. I hear the bat signal. Shut up and bat them, nuts. I definitely do not fuck that. In need of an adult-sized nemesis. Humans make good fertilizer. You can't fuck with Lois Lane. For fuck's sake. I'm a damn good cop. Lot of lasers. Mmm. Educational and informative. The DC Comics News Podcast Network presents Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast. <laughs> Back to you, Seth. So, tell us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Or not. That's really up to all of you. Fuckers. Picture this, someone who knows nothing about comics. Someone who knows comics from movies, TV, and video games. A complete ultra-comics nerd. You pick the character you want us to talk about. You send us the questions you want answered. You make the show. A podcast by fans. For fans. Making new fans. Superheroes. Or dummies. Part of the Comics in Motion podcast network. In a world of stereotypes, being called a geek comes with a certain image. There is still that ingrained thing within me that is a little bit embarrassed about it. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream, and behind every geek is a real story. My dad was the one who got me into Star Wars and things. Join me, your super dummy fool, as I continue my learning experience and talk to the real people. I'm a secondary school teacher, so I teach 11 to 16 year olds in English. Hear their stories exclusively fantastic universes he's one of them like you've ever gonna grow up and i'm like no why should i i I like my life i I enjoy what i do this is my hobby available on all your favorite podcast catchers
Hi, my name's Steve, and I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, listeners. This is Tony Farina from DC Comics News and an occasional guest on Comics in Motion. I'm pleased to announce a new show called Indie Comics Spotlight. Each week, my guests and I will be taking a deep dive into a current title or a classic graphic novel from a publisher other than the big two. Consider this show the best of the rest. My hope is that we'll bring new readers to independent comics and give old readers a chance to share their thoughts. Join me each week in the Comics in Motion feed in your favorite podcast catcher. So switching gears here, I'm very excited to talk about my three villains. Oh, amazing. My three, my three picks for villains. First and foremost, we have uh, Fantasy Trump, who we've mentioned before, <laughs> who is Dagal Neverember. So in our, in our D&D uh, campaign, our ongoing home, home game, basically what I did with Dagal Neverember, because he's played as kind of like a selfish, money-grubbing shell, Ooh. right? And he's got these gold dragons, and his motivation is money. His, money, his, his motivation is basically he's, he's an American politician. <laughs> that's that's how he's written by Watsi. That's his thing. And when when you go to court in Tyranny of Dragons, and he's kind of, you know, he, he's trying to gauge the support and loyalty of the characters, and he's trying to get more people on board, and just for kind of political clout and power and influence and money. And that's for some people, unfortunately, that is a very real motivator, a very real factor, and it's very akin to. You know, you can look out your window and see that. You can turn on the TV and you can see that. All these politicians just scrambling for money and power and influence, and it's really sad. But to have that in D&D and then to add that element of having a city like Neverwinter that has suffered natural disasters and cults and all kinds of other things, it was very easy for us to, and again, content warning, trigger warning here for real-life events with fascism in, in the United States, having... And also having to deal with transphobia, homophobia, racism, that sort of thing. So that's the general content warning. But what I did was to have this antagonist that is motivated by money, power, and influence, just like, uh, you know, our own, I'm not going to even say his name. You know who he is. Um, Blonde haired dude. So having, yeah. (laughs) Well, well, I already already said his name. So fantasy Trump. Uh, So uh, having that sort of, uh, that antagonist and actually having most of the NPCs that the characters were interacting with on the fringes, having setting up an anti-hero story with a Zentarum 
Even at the most basic level, having their Zentarum contact in Phandalin between levels 1 through 6, Halia Thornton, her wife or her partner was taken and was put into this correctional facility, this dungeon below the city, basically the the essential, the equivalent of a World War II Nazi concentration camp. Mm-hmm. And I, I had Diggle Neverember be this real nasty combination of the historical figure of Adolf Hitler mixed with fantasy Trump and having this together with this correctional facility for undesirables and political prisoners, because it was a combination of both the political prisoners that would speak out against Degault that would affect his bottom line, money, power, prestige, influence were sealed away. Members of the Bergen de Athra in Luskin were sealed away. Jarlaxle's crew was sealed away in that dungeon. And anyone that was considered different or other, Ooh. whether it was uh, whether it was uh, Kalishtar, whether it was uh, some of your monstrous races in D&D that a lot of people have the pleasure of playing now with all of our new source books, uh, or whether it was whether it was queer folk. And Degault had these paladins of purity that were essentially sort of like the, the SS or the 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 MAGA folks or your your January six folks and it, it was real scary for a lot of people and that really so real life parallel is is the the theme here having a real life parallel and it's something you have to be careful with you have to discuss in session zero you have to go over the safety tools you have to make sure that everyone is is okay with this but when you're connecting the characters to this to this dungeon, we had a couple of characters who were who were on their way to this this correctional dungeon when they were uh, when their ship was stopped and just at the last second because there were larger issues with the Zentalar, the army of the Zentarum that was mobilizing west, so the shipping had stopped and put on a delay, and then there was an insurgency between the Zentarum and the Xanathar's Guild that was orchestrated by the Zentarum to try and bring military forces back into Waterdeep so they would not march north to aid Neverwinter when inevitably the Zentalar marched on Neverwinter to liberate the city. So the party went through six, seven levels of Lost Mine of Phandelver in the first chapter of Tyranny of Dragons, liberated the Lost Mine of Phandelver, gained access to the Forge of Spells, and as soon as they did, Neverwinter was like, no, that belongs to us. Because Phandalin, that's this is our town. Phandalin belongs to us. We're going to send a military force, which was connected to one of the characters, who was also connected to the dungeon because his brother, secretly, the the big secret for this character that was working for Neverwinter was that his brother was kind of taken away and never seen again. But he was still loyal to Neverwinter. He had a really, a really telling character arc and uh, how this character was working for. Neverwinter and was an investigator for Neverwinter, how he changed and evolved and how his heart warmed and how he finally admitted to himself that I might have killed my brother type of a situation. But when they returned from the Forge of Spells, Neverwinter was marching on Phandalin. And we did a Saving Private Ryan scenario from the the final scene in Saving Private Ryan where we had cannons, prototype cannons, prototype black powder cannons, and heavy cavalry and archers marching on the city and basically almost shot for shot the way that we had lined it up with the ending of Saving Private Ryan. The party had to defend Phandalin 
from these from this attack and all they had to do was hold off until reinforcements from the Centalar arrived. They did. The Wyvern riders showed up. Halia, whose partner had been taken years ago, which was our whole motivation for wanting to to fortify Fandolin and mobilize the Zentalar and and get this army to come march and liberate Neverwinter first. This event that we had was the precursor. And then when the party found out that most of the people that were in the Zentarum, which who were branded as criminals, thugs, anarchists, outcasts, just like, you know, parallel to the real world, having all these people who were really just People like us, you know, queer folk, uh, artists, that type of thing, outcasts, having this home for for undesirables and having this military strength to back it up, this military strength from the east, sinking, sinking up with the Zentalar and marching west, marching on Neverwinter, laying siege to the city with siege towers, for, uh, smashing holes in the walls with ballista, fighting on the fields. They blew a hole in the city with with artillery and then marched panel by panel, map by map, with different NPCs that they had met who, nine out of ten of them are queer, right? And had people, loved ones, friends, family, partners that were in this dungeon that were fighting with every fiber of their being just to get to their loved ones. Uh, same thing with, with a couple of the party members panel by panel and you could see some of the rage and 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 the anger in both the npcs and the players and then finally leading to this confrontation with one of the paladins of purity who was uh i forget the stat block but it's a something paladin or a dark paladin or a fallen paladin uh, i forget exactly what it's called but this was sort of the lieutenant in Digult's, uh, basically like heinrich himmler type of a, a person was outside and they had this epic battle with this fallen paladin this this dark paladin and the forces of Dagalt in right, right outside of that dungeon. And when when the party and the Zentalar and all of their all of their NPCs that they had worked with on individual panels, when everybody converged on this dungeon and ripped the gates off of this particular off of this dungeon and liberated, basically liberated this this concentration camp. And you know then vowed to hunt down Dingle Neverember, who fled like a coward, obviously. They caught him later, but and that was another thing. But having this and and this was a villain whose stat block was that of a noble. Dagalt Neverember had nine hit points and he motivated this party more than anything I've ever seen in Dungeons and Dragons to the point where one, when that paladin of, of purity was was killed, that was cathartic, and that was that was a moment. If you want, you know, for to to be able to release a lot of the angst that was happening in real life, to be able to unleash that and work out some of that angst and 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 a lot of that anxiety and pain and trauma, to work that out on on someone who was kind of a, basically objectively objectively antagonistic in the worst way. And then ripping the gates off this off of this camp and and bringing people these emaciated people out of the dungeon and laying people to rest and then eventually hunting down and executing Dagalt Neverember who when they found he's pathetic he, he really is he's he's got nine HP and an AC of, of eleven and they were like they're like oh this is it but but that whole arc of 
essentially going to war and mobilizing nations to liberate loved ones and friends and, and family members, countless friends, family members, and loved ones, and to see them streaming out of this dungeon. Every single person in that party, myself included, was in tears for several hours. And at the very end, uh, I got a lot of uh, one, uh, one person in particular say, hey, uh, Essie, thank you for this. This thank you. This means more than being able to, to work, to work these things out and have this victory. And of course, you know, things changed, hopefully for the better in the United States. Hopefully we can we can keep you know sanity you know here but things did change for the better but in that moment you know in in the depths of darkness having that real life antagonist that we could tie into to D and have a victory for because everybody in my games is queer one way or another right having that victory and having that triumph over over bigotry and racism and homophobia and sexism and transphobia having that physical victory was just so intense for all of us over a noble with nine HP. And it was, it's, it's a trope, you know, if appropriate for your table, use the noble with nine HP as a villain, make, make him the most devious, sadistic, conniving coward. And again, when the going gets tough, have him run away. I have never seen a party more motivated to track someone down. And they did. And they found him. And again, they had this moment where he was basically cowering in a corner uh, in disguise. And, you know, he had tried to use a disguise kit not very well and was basically begging and pleading for his life. And they were just kind of like, this guy is pathetic. And then they had a public execution. and. You know, it was so cathartic for everyone. That's so that's I know that's heavy. That's that's real heavy, but it's a little heavy, but it's still great just because I think that's the other way you could no, not necessarily the other way. Uh I think that's an example of a villain that is there to oppose the players, not necessarily the characters. The what mm. the character represented, just mirroring the the political climate and mirroring the players' personal sentiments and beliefs and ideals and morals. Having, a figure, like that, yeah. having a figure that goes against everything that the players go through, but just having those clear motivations to show that, yes, they're a layered character, they're not just some sort of like straw man to attack. They're, 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 they're a real antagonist with their own motivations, even if they're still shady and deplorable. Yeah. Having something that opposes the players would give mm. them the motivations to make their characters hate them because then again the players yeah. the characters still reflections of the players. So that is an example of another kind of of another kind of antagonist that really sort of galvanizes the whole party of players and characters just to really feel that there's something motivating them to go against something. That's a really unifying and yeah, I can see the the power of the catharsis and the the joy of taking down a figure like that that would that must have been really powerful and exciting so i can really get behind that yeah there there is a there's a crater in the center of neverwinter where that paladin of purity got divine smited and the characters worked with the centilar to basically erect a monument over <laughs> over this fallen corpse that was a monument to the suffering and the the being able to overcome this this force of 
this this antagonistic force. And I, I'm I'm going to say it here just because it is because it ties into real life objective evil. Yep. So that uh, that was my my first one. My second one, I'll speed it up a little bit because now we're running short on time. Uh, I'll do an easy one. <laughs> I'll do an easy one, as heavy as that was, getting a little bit more lighthearted back into D and D and D and D mythos and lore. Fekna. And I have offered many of the characters the opportunity to be paladins or champions or clerics of, of Vecna. And my version of Vecna, uh, which is obviously a deviation from official canon, my version of Vecna was that Vecna was a Netherese wizard who had befriended uh, in the, was one of the strongest Netherese wizards who had befriended a colossal dragon known as Azdraka, who is in canon, who was part of the ongoing, the sort of mishmash between Last Man of Findover and Dragon of Icefire Peak, specifically at the Dragon Barrow. Uh, and this colossal dragon who had been befriended and tamed by this Netherese wizard back in the heyday of the Netherese Empire with ancient Netheril, uh, and used to swore the skies freely as one of as the most powerful wizard in ancient Netheril. But Vecna's power had caught the ire of many of his other companions, sort of a solitary, awkward loner himself, despite his power. Vecna was eventually betrayed, Ostra, the connection to Ostraka severed, and he was sealed and banished into the farthest reaches of space where his companions could pursue the, uh, the forbidden arts and without Vecna's oversight or without his influence. And Vecna, sort of floating away and left to rot in the deepest corners of space, used his former companions' magics against them, slowly cultivating this necromantic power over eons, slowly uh, over millennia, gaining power, connecting with the Astral Sea, connecting with these entities, channeling all that power and rage and hatred and vengeance into, into this necromantic power before he was eventually able to manipulate other features uh, other figures in various parts of of the universe of the D&D universe and infiltrate these different societies and gain power and be able to travel in between worlds before finally reaching to Faerun and how I have it canonically was that Vecna had had already gone through critical role campaign 1 he had been the whispered one the ascended uh he had been uh, Vecna in all these other all these other home games, and he had he had lived, died, and, and had this unlife in several different realities. So now we're not dealing with with Vecna the Ascended or Vecna the the Insidious. We're now dealing with Vecna the Enlightened. And when he arrived, and it's been an ongoing theme I stole from World of Warcraft and the Greater Cosmology is the theme between ancient Eldritch horrors. Uh, I love. Lo- as problematic as Lovecraft is, I love, love Lovecraftian lore and elements of that. Uh, reclaim it. Reclaim Lovecraft. You know, Lovecraft was was a kind of a piece of trash, but we can reclaim that and use the best parts of that work in our own campaigns and make it gay, make it queer. But we, I have, I established in, in all my games, because one of my favorite, favorite themes is the greater cosmology is that there's something even beyond, even beyond the nine hells, beyond the abyss. And then that is the ultimate powers of light and darkness, of life and death, of void, chaos and order. And amongst them, we have the, the eldritch horrors 
over in the void section, right? Chaos and void section. And then you have the opposed to that, you have death, because death is not corruptible in the ways that Eldritch Horror tentacles can manipulate living flesh, right? So Vecna's whole thing, while he was in the multiverse, he saw the true horrors, right? You know, that, that sort of trope. Uh, I've seen things. Uh, but 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 seriously, that was his whole motivation, is that he, as the Enlightened, knows that there are bigger forces, as he was floating through the, through the Astral Sea, through the multiverse, through these different worlds, saw that there, eventually, all worlds were brought to ruin by, if not time, were brought to ruin early by these eldritch horrors and their manipulation of, of space and flesh and time. And that Vecna's whole enlightened moment is to say that if we, very much like Arthas in World of Warcraft, if we unite the world in undeath and those who do not, you know, those who who willingly agree to serve and willingly agree to to serve with me against these, these greater forces will be given some modicum of sentience and power in the form of a lich, a demi-lich, a necromancer, a, a sorcerer of necromancy, a cleric of Vecna. There, you know, there are a hundred different ways where you can be a powerful ally of Vecna and have these different modalities of undeath and that those who oppose Vecna, then you have the, okay, if you oppose me, I'm going to turn you into a mindless zombie. <laughs> and I had Vecna have a flying fortress, which basically dropped on Cormier, which is now a smaller and crater. <laughs> because Cormier was the last nation to oppose the Zentilar, and Vecna kind of getting the party to be like, are we the, are we the baddies? When Vecna came, you know, arrived as, you know, in falling star form to raise Azdraka, his former companion from the Dragon Barrow, which was bananas. When Vecna finally re-arrived back on, on Toril in Faerun and the Sword Coast and interacted with the party, you know, he was basically like, oh, hey, guys, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, what's up? Because there was a party member who was a, a champion of Vecna. And in our Saturday group, in the same world, there is a paladin who is a champion of Vecna. So he's very familiar with, you know, the interacting, the overarching story that we've been doing. So raise Ostraka, they let him take Ostraka because okay, he's going to help us defeat the Eldritch Horrors, and they have seen the Eldritch Horrors. They've seen what lies beyond. I've opened little rifts and had... They actually fought a lesser Starspawn emissary that was trying to summon a greater Starspawn emissary, and they were like, yo, this is... This is objectively worse, I, I can tell you that. So having that that objectively worse antagonist appear and just be like, consume, you know, <laughs> type of thing. Uh, tentacles through through rifts and everything like that, and and, you know, then you have the the antagonist Vecna, who says, if you want to serve by my side, you can be a necromancer or you can be a wizard or sorcerer. And we can together, we can save this world from the inevitable doom that is to come if we do nothing. And, you know, you can all be be mind slaves, uh, you know, or turned into a big pile of organic goop. Or you can fight by my side and channel this fabled art of necromancy to to defeat this evil. And Vecna was, as always, I've always played him very calm, enlightened, and truly believes that he is the hero of the story. To the point where we had several weeks where the characters were like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. Like, <laughs> what should, like, how should we proceed? And I had, yeah. Go ahead. I think it's because a lot of players are somewhat coded with the expectation of a big necromantic force should be sinister and should not be trusted. So 
I like I, I love how you've characterized Vecna in your games. Just like this Thank grand <laughs> force that has just sort of looked at death. Sort of looked at it over the side and sort of went, no, thank you, put it down, looked left and saw, what are those? No. And just fought against the, the unknowable entity from outside of time and space. Uh, yeah, I think it's such an interesting, deliberate subversion of expectations that could make for a great non-antagonist, <clears throat> as it were. Because Yeah, I like that. It definitely has the potential to do some antagonistic, shady, destructive stuff in your setting, and I'm certain he has. Certainly have. Uh, yeah, he uh, basically dropped a colony on Cormier. Yeah, exactly, as you said, like just like <laughs> leveled, leveled, uh, yeah, large part of the world, hundreds because... of thousands of people. But that was to fuel the undead army. Yeah, because he basically arrived and was like, "Hey, I know you're you know, with the Centaurum. Y'all are pretty cool," which made the party be like, "What?" <laughs> Um, and Vecna was like, where do you want me to drop this thing? And they were like, do you have to? And he's like, it's going to happen one way or another because I need zombies to help fight off the Eldritch Horrors that are coming. He's like, they're right there. They're literally, he's like, you've seen them. And they're like, yeah, we have. And he's like, okay, so I need I need yeah. to make an army. Yeah, it's like, it's like I've got I've got to pass some job applications. Help wanted. Living, yeah. <laughs> living need not apply. Yeah, and and he was like, he's like, who are your enemies? And they were like, oh, I don't want to make this decision. He's like, you have to. And some people were like, can we fight him? I was like, you can try. So they did. And he basically just kind of was like, oh, he was like, for fuck's sake. And had to basically, he's God form, right? I, I took the I took the level 20 Vecna stat block from Critical Role and just made a few alterations. So they're like, okay, 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 okay. We, we can't fight you. And he's like, I don't want to kill you. He's like, I don't want to kill you. I want to fight with you. So he just did a couple of spells that were proving points. You know what I mean? And they're like, all right, all right, all right. And he's like, now I'm going to ask you again, where do I drop this thing? And they said, yeah, I guess Cormier, because that's the last nation, you know, that was opposing the Zentalar and opposing the rise of this new Zentarum Empire. And he said, cool, done. Flew off on Azdrak, I dropped a colony on Cormier, and now there's, you know, however many tens of thousands of people are now uh, mindless zombies. But are under the control of Vecna, and he's got this giant flying colossal dragon, which is really cool, and a floating fortress that is hovering around the crater of Cormier. So... This is the kind of, you know, banana hand stuff we get into in an SED&D campaign. <laughs> Certainly sounds like it, but then again, just that non-antagonist sort of archetype, mm -hmm. just doing something like incredibly unforgivable, but recognizing that, that a greater evil that can never be fathomed is like right there. And yeah, it's such an interesting take on a very recognizable character that I've really sad i didn't think of first <laughs> well uh feel free to you know dnd is big borrow and steal uh but if you want to do something simple you know feel free we yeah, are part of the same network so i'll i'll, I'll think of some stuff but i think it, i think <laughs> it would be unfair until i invited you and some nice people from your community into my setting the good realm of perdition fair enough but, uh last but no oh, go ahead sorry yeah i was gonna say yeah you have a, you have someone else you want to talk about uh, last but not least, and I'll make this one a quick one. Uh, as I can, you can see, let me turn my chair a little bit here. My Lord of the Rings collection, yeah. which is like all of this, using a classic Tolkien villain is something I did for Heaven's Fire. So now there are my favorite villain in Heaven's Fire. I unfortunately, ah, I said villain. Okay, I'm going to dock myself. My wow. favorite, ah, you got me. <laughs> my favorite antagonist in Heaven's Fire is someone who I unfortunately cannot talk about because uh, they directly tie into one of the player characters' backstory. And I will say that they are very similar to 
Magneto. It's a very Magneto sort of trope with, uh, you know, who is truly who is truly the 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 good force or the or the evil force in this in this world. And with the X Men, I like Mag. I like the whole Magneto trope of, um, you know, the the outcasts. You know, should have retribution type of thing. And that is kind of a kind of a similar trope or perfection in mutations and science. And th- there's a lot of stuff going on with that. But in lieu of not being able to talk about this character because of spoilers for Heaven's Fire, uh, the one character that we have already discussed that has already appeared is Ariak the Betrayer, who is very similar to Sauron in Lord of the Rings. And yes, I do have a Morgoth. Morgoth is Satyr, the the Lord of the Lord of Murder and Chaos, who was vanquished millennia ago, right? And then of course Sauron's uh, Satir or Morgoth's first lieutenant being Sauron, and in this case, Ariok. And it's the corruption, the corruption trope. And let me tell you, having a corruption trope that is active, you want to see players get paranoid and be like, we need to do something now, have a corruption mechanic. Tease a corruption mechanic. Show little bits and pieces of ghosts in fallen fortresses, which we did. And they, they were trying to unravel a mystery. One of our playtest groups for Heaven's Fire was trying to unravel a mystery of what happened to this ruined fortress, the New Queens and Expedition Ruins. And they went on this whole quest to sail up north uh, along the western coast of Mystical, which is the central subcontinent, very similar to Mystica. They sailed up the western coast and investigated the these 60-year-old ruins to try to figure out for the queen exactly what happened to her expedition 60 years ago. Because the mystery was still unsolved. And they uncovered the corruption mechanic. And very similar to the One Ring, this is more... It's that, but with anything that is forged by a lieutenant of Ariak or by Ariak himself. These, these relics, these forged relics, these weapons. So... It's almost like a pandemic. So Ariak has six six forge hammers, six infernal forge hammers that are part of the the first time he rose to power. And now with his his rise, kind of like Sauron, how Sauron was defeated and then rose again in a great battle, that type of thing. We now have whispers of Ariak, and these infernal forge hammers have been found, and people have been using them, channeling their magic to craft weapons because it corrupts you. The hammer corrupts you in a way that it wants you to forge these weapons. These six hammers, it wants you to make these devices. And they found out that one of the Infernal Forge hammers was discovered below below the, the Queens and Expedition Ruins. So like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. How many things were forged with this thing? How many pieces of armor or weapons are already out there in the world? Because it's, again, kind of like that pandemic sort of uh, almost like a, like a pathogen. Like this corruption, the, these crafted items that spread in turn spread through the world and causing more and more people to be corrupted, albeit less intensely, but still at a base level of corruption and essentially causes communities, whole communities to turn against and murder each other. And the party is like, oh my God, we need to contain this. We need to track these things down. We need to figure out exactly, you know, see if we can find the other hammers. Are we going to get, and I had them making saving throws and they were like, oh my God, we have to, you know, we have to figure out how to, you know, we got to smash these relics. We got to track them down. We got to, there, there were infernal rifts they found. 
like, we got to get out of here. Like, you know, we got to get away from this rift. We got to get away from this, this corruption. Is the soil corrupted? Like, is the whole subconscious, like what is happening? And it, again, that corruption mechanic or that pathogen mechanic kind of together, very similar to the one ring, but make it spread. That in and of itself and then being like, you know, what's going to happen? Is this inevitable? Are we all just doomed? Is is Ariak just going to do what he did before and, and essentially cause the downfall of an empire uh, the first time he rose to power? And now that they've discovered this connection and how the how the uh, Ar- uh, Arcassian Empire fell, like, oh, my God, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. We have to stop it. And to see them so motivated and be in full panic mode about this corruption mechanic is really cool as a DM to see them scrambling, uh, scrambling for it. So it, this is more of a mechanic uh, and an homage to Tolkien than anything. But I think you probably have some commentary on that. No, I definitely love the the reference to it because it's such clear construction in an antagonist sort of character, someone with that corruption arc. Just seeing someone start out so noble and pure, but then slowly transcend and digress and transgress further and further and further. That's probably the most natural way that someone would become an antagonist like that. And it's still like satisfying in a way that we don't want to watch a car, car wreck satisfying mm-hmm. so for us for us viewers and for the uh, protagonists having to try and deal with that. So yeah, that's definitely a clear path towards creating a, an antagonist type of character. I think we've done it. We have arrived. We did it. I think uh, the moral of the stories that we have told each other about are some of our greatest uh, antagonist hits is to try and create something <laughs> that... I like that. Greatest hits of, of antagonists. They are. They are greatest hits, to be honest, I, th- I would say. And I think the the takeaway for game masters when they're creating their own antagonists for their own games is to look at what the values of a one or more players or player characters are and find ways to contrast that wrapped up in a character or an individual that still has measurable motivations and some sort of sincerity there that makes it possible for you to understand their motives but still not forgive their actions Mm -hmm. but yeah we have wrapped up our antagonistic goody badness baddie goodness and we are looking forward to more constructions of stories and managing gameplay as we continue on with the hostile takeover into 2022 but until such time i want to thank you all for listening to our antagonist goodness and be eager to tune in next time as we divulge more secrets for how Essie and I plays Dungeons and Dragons. But until then, Essie, my good pal, where can our listeners find you and your works across Death's Internet? Every other Saturday, we do our actual play live stream featuring Tomb of Annihilation, uh, within which our players just entered the Tomb of the Nine Gods. Nobody died yet, but that could change. We'll see. It's If you have not read Tomb of Annihilation, if you're a dungeon master and you plan on running it, I str- or running something, some module, I strongly recommend you look into Tomb of Annihilation because it is a banana sandwich. And the Tomb of the Nine Gods itself is, whoo, it's a doozy. So you can check us out there at twitch.tv slash ESPDND on alternating Saturdays. Next Saturday we have off. Today is the second. Let me look at the calendar here. So the next time we stream will be on the, the 22nd. So twitch.tv slash ESPDND. D-N-D, and that's N as in Nitro, just like D&D Beyond. You can also catch us on the YouTubes, 
where you can find all of our D&D podcast goodness, as well as the VODs for our actual play live stream. After we finish Doom of Annihilation, that will be replaced by our Heaven's Fire homebrew campaign that we just talked about. And you can find us youtube.com slash C for creator slash ESP, Aaron Spencer Productions, or you can just type in ESP D&D in YouTube or Aaron Spencer Productions in YouTube or Aaron Spencer Podcast in YouTube search bar. We have some older podcasts that talk about pop culture, and sometimes we just rant about D&D and conventions. Always tying it back into D&D somehow, but you get the point. Other than that, you can find us on any social media, uh, Twitter uh, or Instagram or TikTok, just by searching Aaron Spencer or Aaron Spencer Productions. So that's it uh, for me. Go check us out. Do check them out. Uh, Essie runs a very tight ship of D&D goodness, including many streamed games, as you just described, and a very vibrant and bumping community of uh, D&D nerds, which is queer folk and generally wholesome people. As for little old me, you can find the writing and musings that I do right here on fantasticuniverses.com. I, myself, and my very dear friends write news on gaming social spheres across all of comics, as well as gaming and other interests that tickle our fancy, and you get access to all of that written work well in advance through our Patreon support. As for myself, talk to me on Twitter at IsItTinkerer. The links will be down below. Um, you'll find my ramblings about uh, card gaming goodness and general queer issues there, as I also generally just retweet us, uh, like my Twitter's kind of a mess. But for more written content, look to fantasticuniverses.com as aforementioned. The Apotheosis Studios blog for more TTRPG goodness, where I write interviews with people in, in the community, as well as monsters, magic items, and other things to level up your Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition experience. The League of Legends card game Runeterra CCG.com. You can find my writing there covering deck articles as well as the news from the game itself. And for your visual media, look to twitch.tv forward slash isitinker for my card gaming live streams, uh, the hostile atmosphere on YouTube for my PC gaming let's plays, and No Ordinary Heroes on YouTube for me DMing games with the lovely ladies of No Ordinary Heroes. I make a lot of content, but I'm glad to make it with such dear friends like Essie as we talk antagonists. Uh, thank you for listening, and until next time, live free and play well. Mm-hmm.